0: Welcome to the Volvo Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on Volvo vaginal health.
1: So today we have Dr. Jacob Bornstein, who's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Israel. He's also past president of the ISSVD and chair of the Terminology Committee. He is a longtime vulvologist and has published extensively in Vulvar Disease. Hi, Dr. Bornstein.
0: Kamanda, thank you for having me. I'm glad that you have me with you.
1: Well, thank you for coming to us today. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about vestibulectomies, because you've published a lot about them, and I know you've performed many. So can you tell us a little bit about what a vestibulectomy is?
0: Can you uh, let me start with a story? So it all started in 1985, when I uh, completed my residency in OBGYN in Israel, and I went to uh, Houston, Texas, to Baylor College of Medicine, where I started my fellowship in lower genital tract disease. The first day in Baylor, Professor Raymond Kaufman, who was my mentor there and also a long-time and founding father of the International Society for the Study of Vulvar Disease, so uh, he told me that uh, the next day he wanted me to assist him performing vestibulectomy on a patient who has pain during intercourse. Now, in 1985, although I was graduating from OBGYN residency, The only thing I knew about having pain during intercourse or what we call dyspareunia is that it is either in the head of that woman or maybe she has a yeast. By the way, many healthcare providers still think that dyspareunia is caused by something in the head or the yeast. I'm sure you know that. But anyway, so I was uh, scheduled to assist him on a vestibulectomy, which we performed the next day. Since then, I have performed about 1,500, by the way. But still, that day, of course, I remember for many years. And 1985 was the time when the subject of vestibulitis, the way it was called then, rose some interest. Because until then, it was presumed that the cause of pain during intercourse is indeed psychological. But it was about that time when the organic or the physical nature of vestibulitis, or what we call now provoked vulvodynia, has been found. So uh, Don Woodruff and Ray Kaufman were among the first ones who performed vestibulectomy. By the way, the first paper in 1981 was Don Woodruff, who was a gynecologist and a pathologist, and he claimed 100% success with his vestibulectomies. Uh, By the way, years later, his successors in the clinic said that they had to go back and redo some of the vestibulectomies, and the reason is that Don Woodruff took only the posterior part of the vestibule during his surgery and did not touch the anterior vestibule. And in about half of the women with posterior sensitivity, about half of them come back with after years with sensitivity in the anterior part around the urethral meatus. So they had to redo them. So it's not 100%. By the way, since then, when I am performing a vestibulectomy, I do the whole thing. I take the posterior vestibule and also the anterior vestibule around the urethral meatus. So actually, you quite understand that my procedure is a little bit extensive, I would say.
1: Right. So that's a great history review. So vestibulectomy basically is a surgery to remove the vestibule when people have provoked vulvodynia, right?
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The vestibule, in the anatomy books, you find there may be two lines about it, but it caused so many problems and so much pain to women who have pain during intercourse. Now, the story of pain during intercourse, as I said, for years, they didn't know what's the cause. And I call it one of the shame diseases. Women sometimes are ashamed to talk about it. Actually, many vulvar diseases and conditions are shame disease. And, you know, women don't talk much about it. Of course, you know that your podcast is actually talking about it and raise the interest in that. So women are many times ashamed to talk about their conditions, and pain is one of them. If you have diabetes, you tell everybody, I have diabetes, I'm taking treatment. But if you have pain during intercourse... (laughs) <laughs> Many are ashamed. Anyway, of course, the stibulectomy is one of the treatments for dyspareunia or for vulvodynia, but actually, it's the first one because in 1985, when I started my fellowship, that was the only treatment. After a while, we'll talk again and more about the stibulectomy. But you know, to put the history in perspective, after a few years, when only the stibulectomy was the treatment for provoked vulvodynia. Other treatments came along and tried to find non-surgical treatment, of course, because it's a young woman, you don't want to start with surgery. So then came the physical therapy and then all kinds of other treatment, neuropathic treatment and all kinds of treatment. But since then, vestibulectomy remained the treatment with the highest success rate. Of course, there's a price to pay because it's surgery, but that's the treatment with the highest success rate. The success is quoted at about 85%. Most of those are full recovery. Some of them are partial, significant recovery. There is a 15% which are not cured by vestibulectomy, but 85%, I think it's a high rate for treatment.
1: So personally, when do you do vestibulectomy in your own practice? Do you make patients try something else first or is it one of the things you offer early? What do you do?
0: Today, the new paradigm, we discussed the terminology which I headed in 2015 and we'll talk about it later, but the new paradigm says that you try to tailor treatment according to the associated factor you find in a woman. So, for example, in the past, five years ago, ten years ago, a woman came to me, I would start, of course, examining her, treating a candida if there is one. I used to send all my patients to physical therapy, and I'm sure many of the listeners still do that. And then I would try some medication, some neuropathic medication, like amitriptyline, and so on and so forth. And if nothing helped, and it took a few months or even years, if nothing helped and the pain was very severe, causing the couple to avoid intercourse because of the pain, then I would refer her to vestibulectomy today, Things are a little bit different because you try to tailor treatment. So although uh, vulvodinia is an idiopathic condition, actually, you say vulvodinia when you don't see a cause, you don't, there's no visible cause for vulvar pain. So although it is idiopathic, we have what we call associated factors, which is half a way to say a cause. So if a patient does not have any clue of pelvic floor instability i would not refer her to a physical therapist anymore i think it's a waste of time the way i examine her is where i press on the levator ani muscles there is no tension at all there's no sensitivity at all i would not send her to physical therapist now i know the physical therapists that listen to me right now are very upset because they say what do you have to lose but from my experience I don't send them anymore to physical therapists if they don't have any kind of pelvic floor instability. Of course, if they are on oral contraceptive pills and the vagina looks a little bit atrophic, I would try to apply some estrogen cream, stradiol cream. If I think that this is not the cause, I may try to use some neuropathic medication, but if that doesn't work, I would go to vestibulectomy. If the woman agrees, of course, you explain all the side effects and so on.
1: And how often are there complications of the stipulectomy? And what kind of complications are there?
0: Close to none, you know. Of course, it depends on your experience and so on. Theoretically, there may be uh, associated defects on the close by vagina, bladder, urethra, anus, but I don't see much. Even with Ray Kaufman, early in our work, we decided that the incision line will extend to halfway way between the fourchette, the introitus, and the anus. And the reason is because you want to advance the vaginal flap, so the suture line will not be in the introitus, because in the earlier cases where the suture line was, the scars are invisible. But that line between the mucosa and the skin is very sensitive, and when they resume intercourse, that would be painful. So we moved that line a little bit to the back. And so that's not problem anymore. The other problem that we had in five percent of the cases is formation of a Bartholin duct cyst. Just yesterday I saw a patient, she was operated by somebody else, and she had Bartholin cyst on both sides. And one of them on the right side extended anteriorly all the way to the clitoris, that was the big one. And I don't see that anymore. And the reason is that during my surgery, I many times, if I palpate the Bartholin gland, I would take it out. You know, there were early studies that claimed that the Bartholin glands are the cause of that condition. I don't think so, but in many times, the Bartholins are involved. They're very sensitive. And anyway, you know, when you remove the vestibule, the duct from the Bartholin gland is blocked. So about only 5%, I will develop Bartholin cyst. The patients will tell you, even when I think about sex, I feel pain because Bartolin gland becomes swollen. So I remove them. I remove them so I don't have any problem with that. Some of the women say that they feel a little bit dry. That feeling goes away after a while. And until it goes away, they can use some lubricants. So that's no problem. Two common questions I get before I perform a vestibulectomy. The first question is, how will it look like? Many of them fear that the partner will not like what he sees after the surgery. Well, the truth is that most partners don't see any difference because we don't actually touch the minor labia. There is some change in the back, as I said, because we advance the vagina. Also, half of the gynecologists that will examine you, I say, will not notice difference. The second common question that I get is will this surgery affect vaginal delivery? Will it prevent me from having vaginal delivery? The answer is no. There's no problem in having a vaginal delivery. The question comes from surgery on the vagina in women who have prolapse, uh, you know, colporophy, where you tighten the vagina. And those women who have colporophy we are not happy that they will have a vaginal delivery because that may tear the tissue. But after vestibulectomy, there is no problem. In most cases, there is no need for episiotomy, and there are no tears because the perineum is already open, so they can have vaginal delivery with with no problem.
1: How long have you followed people for post surgery?
0: I don't remember if that has been published, but I had a fellow of mine who went back to the patients that I operated about 25 years ago. When I came back to Israel from my fellowship, it was in the early 90s, and I started to perform vestibulectomies here. And he contacted and went to talk with the first women I operate. He gathered about 30 or 50, I don't remember how many, uh, patients of mine. I operated about 25 to 28 years ago. And what he saw is that all these women who were successful during the first operation, the success continued. None or almost none had a recurrence of pain. So I say if that works, it works. It won't uh, come back. Uh, You know, early on when we started to perform vestibulectomies, we found out that I can anticipate which women will be successful and which women may fail. And we found that women who had pain not only during intercourse, but the vestibule was painful all the time, have a six-times chance to fail the operation. So that condition of pain during intercourse and continuous pain together, we termed vestibulodynia. That word came from my group. As you know, that word was adapted by the Vulvar Society to describe vestibulitis, whichever. But the original paper on vestibulodynia is constant pain plus pain during intercourse. And these women, this condition is a little bit more severe. And I usually, when I have a woman who has pain all the time, not many, but some of them have pain all the time in the vestibule. I'm not talking about generalized pain. Those who have pain all the time, I can tell them that I cannot promise 85% success, much less. Problem is, they may fail with every treatment. Those who are hard to treat are hard to treat with any treatment. And the second group that has less success than others are those with primary vulvodynia, those who had pain during the first attempt at intercourse, or those that the mother says, ever since she was a little girl, she couldn't put on the jeans because it was very painful in that area. These women, maybe because of the long-standing vulvar pain, or the long-standing problem with the nerves. Fair a little bit worse, I would say.
1: So I think you brought up two very important things. One is you choose your patients carefully and then you are very experienced at this. And that's shown in a lot of medicine that the more experienced people are, the better they are at something. So it suggests to me people need to find the right person if they're going to have the surgery. Because if people are only doing a few a year, they probably don't have as good outcomes, and they tend to be more negative towards doing the surgery.
0: You know, for some reason, maybe exactly because what you said, surgery received a bad reputation. And the reason is, I think, because of inexperienced performers.
1: Yeah, and I think that's very important. So I think that was a very good review of vestibulectomy, unless you, do you have anything else you'd want to mention about it?
0: No, I think the treatment is a very good treatment for provoked vulvodinia. Of course, it should be done for special indications and by experienced physicians. There was a time a few years ago where my extensive approach was criticized and less extensive approaches were published. I don't mind if somebody has a very good success rate with a slightly less extensive procedure, that's fine. But then uh, we planned to run a comparative study between a few surgeons. It never happened. But then we heard behind the curtains that those who perform the surgery in a minimal way have less success. So I still think that my approach uh, is very successful. I usually keep my patients overnight at the hospital. So that's another price to pay because I do it extensively and it's very painful in the first hours. Then when they go home, they usually stay at home for 10 days or so because it's painful. Of course, they take pain medications, but after 10 days, two weeks, they go back to usual activities. I allow them to have a vaginal intercourse again after two months. I usually examine them before I allow them to have that. Some surgeons uh, recommend that after surgery, before they start to have uh, vaginal intercourse, they will use uh, dilators, which is a good advice, you know, before the real thing to prepare the vagina and the muscles were in disuse. But again, whatever you do, 85% that's uh, the success rate, more or less.
1: Well, that sounds great and good hands. So, Thank you very much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Silk. It was a pleasure.
1: And again, that's Dr. Jacob Bornstein, who's a professor of ob in Israel, past president of ISSVD, and a very experienced phobologist.